0: You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Well, last week, indeed, we started a series called Breaking Free from Your Past, and we learned how generational sins and relational patterns can be passed down from one generation to another. I wondered, has anyone ever said to you, you are becoming more like your dad. Have you ever quietly whispered to yourself, I am sounding more and more like my mom. Now for most people, this bit of feedback or self-reflection is terrifying. One, because it is like a splash of cold water in the face. I am growing older. And two, for those who have vowed to never be like their dads who, swore to be different than their mom's, the inner mom or dad coming out in you can hit one like a speeding freight train. Now, progressive insurance has tapped into this fear through a series of ads. And for example, in the one we're going to see, adult men and women meet at a dad support group to discuss the fear of turning into their fathers. Enjoy. Enjoy. I think it's a Mimi, (laughs) that's great. (laughs) You know, the litmus test of when a commercial is really funny is when young and old find it equally hilarious. And uh, my youngest son and I love these commercials. Actually, our favorite one is where the husband lifts up a shovel full of mulch and turns to his wife and says, ah, that's good mulch. (laughs) My son, Davis, has heard me say those exact words so many times. (laughs) We just keep laughing every time we see it. Now listen, seriously, many of you prize, you have parents that you prize as heroes. And you're excited to become like that. And praise God for that. But many others have made a desperate vow to never become like them. Yet despite any vow that we make to ourselves, the older we get, the more we feel the pull of our parents like gravity. The Bible expresses this reality in Proverbs 22. Train up a child in the way he should go, and in the end he will not depart from it, for better or for worse. Our parents' voice, their character, their habits, hang around in us, sometimes affirming, sometimes scolding, sometimes haunting us. One of my worst moments as a human being was mistakenly giving my mother the impression that she had raised me in the same manner as she was raised. Now, not in totality, but in one narrow aspect. Even 60 years later, this one aspect of how my mother was raised by her mother, my grandmother, remained very tender to my mom. She had vowed not to repeat the pattern. And when she thought I was suggesting that the pattern was repeated, she became visibly upset and was moved to tears. Now, making your mom cry, that's not a good day. Not a good day. But the illustration serves us that talking about these things is very emotional. It relates to some of the most important parts of our lives, Some of the most tender, some of the most sensitive. This is why I promised to try to gently unpack it. I would like today, building on what we did last week, to try to accomplish three things. One, I would like to take us through a journey of four generations in the Bible to underscore this truth that sinful patterns can be handed down. Ironically, these are some of the Bible's most loved characters. Secondly, I want us to appreciate how identifying these areas is a critical part of our spiritual formation. And then thirdly, practically, I want to talk about how do we get Jesus, how do we get Jesus into our bones? Now remember where we're heading this whole series. It's not to remain stuck, but it is to turn generational sins into generational blessings, and to leave a legacy that is life-giving, and to yield confident children that are healthy emotionally and relationally, whether they are our physical kids, or whether they are the men and women that we lead to Jesus and that we disciple. Okay, that's what we want to try to do this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, pray that this morning, Holy Spirit would give us access and a connectedness to Jesus, where we could understand Him and His heart and His affections and His desire for us in a clear way. A way that would break through all the barriers that we set up. Lord, all of the mental and different kinds of exercises we do to try to intellectualize this whole Christian story. Pray that you would break through, God, barriers of unbelief this morning. Break through barriers of of insecurity. That, Father, You would break through barriers this morning where we're unwilling to go certain places because of fear. I pray that You would break through the barrier of fear this morning. Lord, all in all, that we might become more like Jesus. And that the families and that the communities and that the small groups and that the relationships we have with people in our community, we might truly be Jesus. We might be, know how to draw people close together. We might know how to speak truth with love. We might know the fabric of gentleness and tenderness. Father, we pray You'd do something very special this morning that we could not imagine if we had tried. And all this would, Father, produce greater glory in your church and for Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. Amen. 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 Okay, turn to Genesis 12 with you if you would. If you use the Bible in front of you, it's page eight. Very first book of the Bible. Let's first take a journey through four generations in the Bible, four families. In Genesis, we're introduced to the remarkable story of Abraham. Abraham lived around 2,000 years before Christ in what today is modern-day Iraq. We know that Abraham worshipped idols like their neighbors. Perhaps it was the moon god prevalent at that time in that place. But then Yahweh, the real god, steps into Abraham's life, appears to him, calls him away from his pagan life, Abraham believes and he answers the call to God and he leaves everything behind family, wealth, inheritance, all that was familiar to him in order to follow this God into an unknown place. Let's begin at verse 1 in chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went. The centerpiece of this promise is that Abraham and his wife Sarah will have a son. This is meaningful and this is mysterious because they were unable to have children. Based on this promise, Abram, as he's called at this point, sets out on a journey. And indeed, God will do great things in his life. He will become the father of Israel. His name does become Great. Even thousands of years later, his name is today revered by Christians, Jews, and Muslims. Those who bless him are blessed. Those who curse him are cursed. And most importantly, through Abraham comes Jesus, the Messiah. And through Jesus, the entire world will be blessed. But God does not call perfect people. He calls sinful and broken people. And Abraham has a lot of his past in him. Lots of pagan background is in his bones. So look down in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. It's good. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, Here is your wife. Take her and go. Sarai, about 65 at this time, is very beautiful. She is Abram's half-sister. So, what he says is half-true. But he has shaded the truth of Pharaoh and given his wife to him because he does not trust that God... Will protect them. Now we can sympathize with his plight, can't we? In the ancient world, what Pharaoh wanted, Pharaoh got, and husbands were unnecessary chattel in the way, killed to eliminate any competition. So Abraham hedges his bet to protect himself, and whether it was intentional or not, adds to his depleted portfolio. He becomes a very wealthy man in the process. Now, the plagues on Pharaoh and his household, along with the next incident, they set a hint to us. They point to a harsh reality that very likely Pharaoh slept with Sarai. And if our theory is correct, this directly threaten the promise that God gave to Abraham, for then the Pharaoh could lay claim to any children. So this is a big deal. Now, if you think that this is a one-time occurrence, a mistake by Abraham, turn to chapter 20, verse 1. A lot has taken place in these intervening chapters. Chapter 20, verse 1, from there Abraham, God has now changed his name to Abraham, journeyed toward the territory of the Nageb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, Abimelech is more likely a title, not an actual name. And this guy is really intriguing. If you were to look at the next verses, you would see that God appears to Abimelech and they go back and forth in this conversation. And Abimelech is terrified because according to the dream, the judgment of God hangs over him if he sleeps with Sarah who even at this late age, about 90, remains very beautiful and desirable. Now, if I was a female, I would say, what's your secret? But I'm not a female. I'm not going to say that. Verse 8. Verse 8. Pop down there. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things about this dream and the judgment. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? In other words, what were you thinking in our vernacular? The dream keeps Abimelech, who's a pagan Philistine king, from committing what he calls a great sin. Adultery. And again, this is so critical to the plan of God because just peek over to the next chapter. Do you see the chapter heading? You will see that at 90, Sarah finally does get pregnant with Isaac, the child of promise. A compromise here, humanly speaking, would have threatened and compromised the very promises of God. Now, again, if you read on, you'll see in the next few verses, Abraham responds to Abimelech. And according to verse 13, lying about Sarah was not made up on the spot. It was a contingency plan from the very beginning. Abraham knew it was a dangerous journey and his attractive wife his attractive wife put his life on the line and so a half truth with a half truth i will throw her into the arms of another to save my skin this is what he reasoned now keep in mind Abraham is the man that God chose but the bible does not hide His shadow side, a willingness to distort the truth for self-protection, and certainly his misogyny, his low view of women, which is also a part of the entire culture. Now in the ultimate irony about all this, the biblical writer goes out of his way to show us that the pagan kings show more concern for morality than God's... Man does. This is the first generation, Abraham. Let's move to the second generation. That's the first. Let's move to the second generation. Go over to chapter 26 and verse 1. Now Abraham has two sons. There was another son in the intervening chapters born by the name of Ishmael who was born through Hagar, Sarah's servant. Now, this was a common practice in the ancient world, securing a surrogate mother when there was infertility in order to extend the family line. But, in our context here, this was not God's way. It was not waiting and walking by faith. The result was a bitter rivalry between Sarah and Hagar. One son was clearly favored, Ishmael and Isaac, and Ishmael and her innocent mother were eventually sent packing. Look on at chapter 26. Isaac, for his part, was the promised child, and we pick up his story now in chapter 26, verse 1. This is Isaac now. This is the next generation. Now there was a famine in the land, Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Anything sound familiar to you? Same circumstance, famine, same place, and likely either the son or the grandson of the Abimelech we've just met. What happens next? If you read down in verse 2, you will see that God graciously restates the Abrahamic promise to His son Isaac. I'm going to bless you and multiply you. Give you this land. All nations will be blessed through you, Isaac. God's plan will continue through him. But look down at verse 6. So Isaac settles in Gerar, When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, Wait for it. Wait for it. She is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Can I hear someone say, like father? The apple doesn't fall too far from the... If it worked for dad, it can work for me. Isaac shows he has not learned from the failures of his father. Imagine that. Whatever that laughing was in verse 8, I can assure you it was not the normal activity of siblings. But as to our point of self-protection and the distortion of truth and the misogyny, it has passed down unchecked. Again, verse 10 shows the irony of a Philistine king who's confused and perplexed and reveals a surprising moral sensitivity for the age he lives in. And he is more righteous than Isaac in this matter who's just been promised by God that he would protect him. This is the second generation. Now let's move to the next generation. Isaac has two sons. And they were twins whose names were Jacob and Esau. What we see immediately in this family is that the favoritism continues with Isaac favoring Esau and Rebekah, his wife, favoring Jacob. These two sons are as different as day and night and do not get along. Their rivalry even creates misplaced loyalties between mom and dad. Who are more devoted to their children than they are to one another. The dysfunction in this family will reach its zenith in a plot hatched by Rebecca. She devises a plan for Jacob to steal his brother's birthright or his inheritance. Now, Isaac, the dad, is old and blind, vulnerable. He can't see. And he is near the end of his life. And Rebekah seizes upon that weakness for her plans. Jacob literally poses as his brother to initiate the subversion. Turn over to chapter 27 and look at verse 18. So Jacob went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Jacob said, "Here I am. Who are you, my son?" Jacob said to his father, "I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that my soul that your soul may bless me." But Isaac said to his son, "How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son?" He answered, "Because the Lord your God granted me success." Jacob disguises his scam with pious language. He goes on to deceive his father and steal the blessing from Esau. Now in the ancient world, this verbal blessing was an irrevocable promise. It was gone forever from Esau. And so this characteristic of distorting the truth for self-protection in one generation has passed on to the next as an outright lie to your blind dad on his deathbed. The sin is actually growing worse. Jacob's very name means deceiver. He's a con man. He's manipulative. He's always conscious of how he can steer people and steer things to his own advantage. Like his grandfather and father before him, Jacob cannot wait on God to fulfill His word, so he takes matters into his own hands. And his actions have terrible consequences. He was divided from his brother for 20 years, and even more tragically, after the whole thing blew up, he never saw his beloved mother again. That's the third generation. Now the story continues to the fourth generation following Jacob. Now, Jacob will come to know God in a very significant way. It's a great story. that uh, takes place on the banks of the Jordan River. But I want to pick it up and talk about Jacob's youngest son in chapter 37, verse 2. So now we're going to the fourth generation. Joseph, being 17 years old, he's the, son of, the youngest son of Jacob, Actually, Benjamin's younger. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Two wives have become four wives now. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, who's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors, which would become a musical in the 21st century. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. First, Joseph told on his brothers, nobody likes a tattletale. Next, he ill-advisedly told them a dream that they will all one day worship at his feet. Can you imagine your youngest sibling coming to you and saying that one day you will render to him or her unending admiration? That's not going to make for a pleasant holiday. How many of you are the babies in your family? How many of you think like Joseph here, huh? How many? How many of you lay claim to being the favorite? All right, all right, I'm a baby too. Some dynamics never change. So what do the hate-filled brothers do? They kidnap Joseph. They send him on a convoy of semi-truck drivers heading south on 71 to Egypt. And to cover their tracks, they concoct a story to explain his disappearance. Look at verse 32. They took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found, Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. And again, if you go on, you see the tremendous pain and grief this caused Jacob. He said, I'll go down to Sheol to my son mourning. He wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianites, the semi-truck drivers, sold him to Egypt where Joseph spent about 17 years. Well, actually, the rest of his life, but, but it would be an amazing thing would happen there. Alright. So we've walked through four generations of a family. And in, in the fourth generation, every dysfunction in this family has come crashing down. Lying, deception, manipulation, sibling rivalry, favoritism... Lack of closeness and misogyny. And unchecked, the sin grew worse over time. This is the shadow story of the life of Abraham. This is the shadow side of Abraham's life. Isaac, Jacob, the whole four generations. Joseph. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this Testimony from the scripture, this story from the Bible about generational sins and relational patterns being passed from one generation to the next. I think at its very outset, here's the first thing this story should get us to stop, it should get us to reflect, and it should get us to be honest the first step towards any change is identifying exactly what the problem is. We cannot stop what we are not aware of. What we are ignorant of, we are bound to repeat. I think there was someone famous one time that said something like that about history. The problem is is that we tend to ignore or underestimate the reality of our family system what we have inherited emotionally or relationally. Peter Schizero said this, is that we often underestimate the deep, unconscious imprint our families of origin leave on us. In fact, my observation is that it is only as we grow older that we realize the depth of their influence. He goes on to explain that these imprints... Our patterns operate in families as a set of commandments. Some are spoken and explicit. Some are unspoken. They are hardwired into our brain, and we automatically bring them, if unchecked, into our closest relationships. Many of them run counter to the ways of Jesus. Some of our things that we've inherited from our families actually complement and reinforce the ways of Jesus. Many of the things that we've inherited, the traits, run counter to the ways of Jesus. Here's just a few examples that Schizero mentions about some of these commandments hardwired into our brain. For example, conflict. How conflict was managed in your family. When I do premarital counseling with couples, this is one of our most significant conversations. What were the rules about conflict in your family? For example, things like avoid conflict at all costs, or don't get people mad at you, or loud, angry, constant fighting is normal. Here's a second example of a commandment hardwired into an area, for example, attitudes towards different cultures. Again, for example, only be close friends with people who are like you. This may have been spoken. It may have been unspoken. Do not marry a person of another race or culture. Or thirdly, certain races and cultures are not as good as mine. Again, these things can leak and seep through from generation to generation. Here's a third one. How about success? What is success like? Success is getting into the best schools. Success is making lots of money. Success is getting married and having children. Again, are these the ways of Jesus? There are legitimate questions on each of those with respect to what our messages are, what we've inherited regarding success. I don't know if you kept this... Slide or not, Gail, I might have told you to eliminate, but a fourth one is feelings and emotions. There were certain rules in your family about feelings, about emotions. For example, you're not allowed to have certain feelings, or your feelings are not important. Or thirdly, the other way, reacting with your feelings without thinking is okay. That also is not a good script. There are many other areas of unconscious imprints. How money is thought of, how grief and loss are experienced, how conflict is managed, how expressing anger is modeled, and what is expected of our family relationships. These are all areas that the ways of Jesus inform us. But we as Christians think of our discipleship, we tend to think of it strictly in spiritual terms. Memorizing verses, coming to church, praying, which are all, oh, by the way, great, great things. Don't do them any less. Do them more. But Scazzaro says we also tend to compartmentalize. On one hand, I have the Bible, I have church, I have Christian activities. On the other hand, I have these inherited traits and attitudes which I think are normal or right, Because that's the way I was raised. We often fail to merge these two paradigms. And yet the words of Jesus speak into these inherited traits and unconscious imprints. Jesus is Lord. Followers of Jesus must come to a place where they recognize that Jesus has a higher claim on their life even more than their family. This is why he said these very radical words, Jesus said, if you love your father or mother more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If Jesus was not the king of the universe, these would be cultic, these would be the statements of an insane person, These would be the words of an egomaniac. But if Jesus is Lord, these are His words. You see, changing external behaviors in the Christian life, such as adding daily Bible reading to your schedule, is not as hard as rooting out generations long of ingrained attitudes and practices. And so there are people who have been Christians all their lives. They read the Bible constantly, but they don't know how to create warm, close relationships where family members thrive. You see, what is in their bones about how to resolve conflict or express emotions or a vision of success actually undermines the very thing that they want. You see, this helps us to understand some of the strange pictures we get in Christian leadership. And I'm speaking to myself as well, where there are leaders who have so many gifts. They are so charismatic. They are so good with people. But they're alcoholics. Or they fall into affairs. This helps us understand and explain this this contradiction And so finally, you might ask the question, well, based on what you're saying, is there any hope? Am I simply a slave to my past? And the message from Galatians, the message of the Gospel, is an absolute no. It can be done. But it means getting Jesus into our bones. Let me share quickly here four ways, four R's to do this. And then we'll close and sing and worship Him. Okay, here's some practical things that you can do to get Jesus into your bones, to help to identify some of these traits that have lived for generations in your family tree. Number one is simply do research and ask good questions. There's something called a genogram. I'm certain many of you have heard about it. You can go online and learn about a genogram, And how to make one, you can sit down with a a trusted Christian counselor and go through a genogram. But a genogram will help you to identify and to diagnose your own past. And to begin to understand what are maybe some of the traits, positive and negative, that run through my family tree. Secondly, is to repent from sinful patterns. To Repent from sinful patterns that you have inherited, that you now are responsible for. This repentance is a constant, repeated theme in the Bible. Repent means to fundamentally change our mind about Jesus, to recognize He is the Son of God and has the ultimate authority to lead our lives. Confess these patterns to God and ask the Holy Spirit for power to change. I'm not suggesting it's going to be easy. If there are affairs, if there is alcoholism, if there is suicide, if there is rage in your family tree, it may be a long journey to get better. But it all begins by repentance. And when you fall, return again to Jesus and repentance stay on the pathway to healing get more and more of the spirit in your life by walking in the ways of Jesus Proverbs 24 16 says the righteous man may fall seven times seven in the Bible means infinite the righteous man may fall an infinite amount of times but what makes him righteous not that he doesn't fall it says he rises up again. That's what makes him a righteous man. He falls an infinite amount of times, but he gets back up. Thirdly is responsibility. So research, repentance, responsibility. When we jump into this study, there is a tendency to blame your parents or to blame your grandparents. And I understand that. And certainly there must be Losses grieved and mourned when, uh, when there was hurt and pain in your immediate family. I'm not suggesting to gloss over that, but ultimately you must give an account to God and others for your actions. See, you have the power to choose. If we lose that equilibrium between. My responsibility and others' responsibility, I won't believe I can change by the power of the Holy Spirit. If I'm obsessed with blame of my parents, I will never believe I have the power to change. I'll be a slave to that. As a matter of fact, when you do a genogram correctly, and when you do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, can I say that we actually have more compassion on our parents? Because we recognize the larger story in which they walked. We recognize the struggles they had to walk through and process. And that ought to give us compassion for them. And so it's important that you maintain individual responsibility as you think through your past. And finally, fourthly, is to remember. Now I want to go back to the first family. I want to go back to the first family. Remember, in that first family, in that first family, besides the sinful patterns, there were also many good things that Abraham passed on to his family. Namely, one thing. (laughs) Namely, one thing was the best that he passed on, and that was faith in Yahweh. To not forget God, nor His promise, even amidst all their failures, to not forget God, to not forget His promises. We find Jacob in the fourth generation, many decades after Abraham, at the end of his life, leading on his cane, worshiping God, and holding on to the promise. And that promise was ultimately realized in Jesus. And by holding on to that promise, They were looking into the future for Jesus who would bless the world. Now that He has come, we can look backwards to Him. And with faith that our approval before God rests ultimately. Our approval before God does not ultimately rest in how much progress we make breaking free from our past. Our approval before God rests on Him alone. His death, the cross, His resurrection, His ascension. It is through that He offers forgiveness and eternal life to everyone. And it is remembering that that we find power this week to make more progress on breaking free from our past. Let's pray. Father, In Jesus' name, we pray for the spiritual, the relational, the emotional, and the physical healing that we need in order to break free from relational patterns, to break free from destructive patterns that has plagued our families for years, that has kept communities from drawing close, that has kept marriages from being intimate, that has kept parents at always at odds ends with their children and children not able to draw close to each other. Father, we pray for an honest assessment and a rigorous looking and a repentance that would come in, over us and into us for attitudes and practices that do not line up in accord with the ways of Jesus, the ways that our Lord calls us to live. And thank you for forgiveness that we can remember this morning. Thank you that we can start afresh, we can start anew, we can make progress again this week. Because we know our approval, our justification, our adoption rests on what Jesus has already done for us. It's in His name we pray. Amen.